Well, let's look in 1 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 12. I'll just read verses 12 to 14 that Jerry read for us to open the service today, and we'll start unpacking what this means. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Interesting passage here in Scripture today. Just to give you a recap of the previous scenario that Paul was addressing, last week we looked at verses 10 and 11, and the Lord says, He said in the Gospels as we read through Matthew and Mark, He says through the Apostle Paul as he's writing this letter to the believers in Corinth, the Lord says that His people should not divorce, that Christians are to reflect Christ and the church not only in their coming together, in their wedding, but also in their staying together. It's a reflection of Christ in the church, and therefore the instruction that we looked at last week from the Lord is that the wife should not leave her husband, and the husband should not send his wife away. But there's a transition taking place in the text where he's moving from one scenario to another, and perhaps one of the things that caught your eye first today there in verse 12 is that Paul says, to the rest I say, not the Lord, but I say. That's an interesting phrase for Paul to use. But all he's saying here is that he's introducing some new apostolic teaching. Paul was an apostle, and he's introducing some new teaching to these believers in Corinth. This isn't a teaching that the Lord gave when the Lord was walking the earth during His earthly ministry, like the previous verses were. But this is new insight into the marital relationship. It's not saying that This is an opinion that I have apart from any authority. It's just as much authoritative as the words of Jesus. There are Christians out there today who are red-letter Christians, who just take what Jesus says as Scripture and everything else. Well, that's just men talking. But that's not the way that Jesus spoke of Scripture, the men who came before His virgin birth. There were Moses and the prophets, and Jesus spoke of those texts as Scripture, And Jesus sent out His apostles and said, the Holy Spirit will be with you and call to mind those things that you need to know and you need to write down. His apostles have authority. He met Paul on the road to Damascus. We've been talking about this a lot on Wednesday nights in our Acts study. He met Paul on the road and set Paul apart as an apostle. And apostles have authority to speak from God. So Paul here is introducing a another dynamic to the marital relationship with just as much authority as if the Lord Jesus Himself was teaching. And the different circumstances that Paul presents, are it's a very pressing issue in Corinth, because you have to keep in mind that the gospel and church and all this stuff is brand new in Corinth, brand new in Greece. There are people coming to know the Lord in Corinth after their wedding, many people coming to know the Lord, already married to someone. And so there were many Christian men and women with unbelieving spouses. 
And we have to believe this was the case in many of the churches at this time as people were just coming to faith in Jesus for the first time. Everybody who came to faith in Jesus during these days was a first-generation Christian. Maybe you've heard that term before. I'm a first-generation Christian in my family. They were all first-generation Christians uh, because Jesus had just come and died and rose again and ascended into heaven. So Christian men and women, many of them in the church, had unbelieving spouses. And we know from even this very chapter that this is not the way things should be. Look at verse 39 with me, the second to last verse of the chapter. Speaking to a different scenario, and we'll get to this eventually, Paul writes that a wife is bound as long as her husband, her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So Paul gives a remarriage scenario after the death of a spouse and says that person is free to remarry, but remarry only in the Lord. That's a part of the command. That's the scope of the options for that widowed wife or that widowed husband. As that person enters into another marriage, it is to be only in the Lord. This is God's design in marriage, that it would take place in the Lord, that a husband and wife wouldn't be unequally yoked, but that they would be equally yoked in faith, that they would both be those who confess Jesus as Lord the biblical Jesus as Lord. Who you marry is so important, and it changes your life forever, doesn't it? One way or another, it will change your life forever, forever, whether that marriage carries on for a short time or a long time. Who you marry is so important, and that's why as a pastor and as just a Christian who is concerned for other Christians, I'm a big believer in premarital counseling. I'm a very big believer in that practice. My wife and I did it, and I don't regret a minute of it. We only had maybe five or six sessions, but they were valuable. They were all very valuable. And it, always, it doesn't always have to be formal. It doesn't have to be with a pastor in the office sitting down and working through specific worksheets or something like that. But just some form of premarital counsel is so important because people will think, well, who I marry, that's just individual, and that doesn't involve anybody else. Naive. That's naive. As a Christian, you are a part of a community. In your marriage, the most important human relationship you have affects the community. You should get counsel from the community when you enter into a covenant marriage, a relationship as important as a marriage. Nevertheless, these things happen where a Christian gets bound to an unchristian, non-Christian in marriage. Think of the Corinthians. What type of marriages were they in when they came to Christ? These, by and large, were pagans, not Jews. Think of all the messed up beliefs they had about humans and human relationships and sexuality. They were in some weird marriages. (laughs) You just got to believe that. They were in some very strange circumstances. And they had to get an answer to the question of, well, what now? (laughs) I've been in this pagan marriage and now I'm a Christian. What do I do? What's next? That's, That's an honest question, isn't it? I mean, as history played itself out, as the gospel reached more and more people, not every household got saved like the Philippian jailer's household. 
Remember the Philippian jailer? He was, he was told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and all your household. And just a couple verses later, there's this whole household getting baptized. Well, that's great. Doesn't always happen that way. In fact, it's extremely rare that it happens that way. Extremely rare. So it's an honest thought that the Corinthians may have had, well, I should just start this marriage thing over. Think about where we are in the text, this letter to the Corinthians. Paul had just spoken of in chapter 6 how your bodies are temples, your temples of God. Therefore, don't take your body and go join your body to a temple prostitute. Don't take this believing body, this redeemed body, and join it with an unbeliever, someone who is not your spouse. You're a temple. Remain holy. Treat your body as a holy temple. So they could have been thinking, well, here I am married to a pagan. I'm, I've joined myself as a temple to a non-believer. I must hit the reset button now on this marriage thing. And some new reader of Scripture might think that would be what Paul would advise. It seems like just practically wise to do so. It's very pragmatic to do so. Instead of remaining bound to this unbeliever, just get out of that marriage and start over. But that's not what Paul presents here. And he presents the situation from both the husband and the wife perspective. This is what he did in verses 10 and 11 too, where he says, the husband shouldn't send away his wife and the wife shouldn't leave her husband from both perspectives, which is amazing equality, especially at this time, that he would speak from both perspectives. He says that in verse 12, that the brother should not send away his wife. And that word for divorce means to send away. It's the same word as in verse 11 that we looked at last week. It means to separate. The, the brother, the believing husband, should not. This is a command. He should not send away his wife. It's a command not to do that. And the same for the wife. She should not send away or divorce her husband. As Christians, we need to recognize there's great importance in recognizing our covenants, keeping our covenants, being committed to our covenants. As Christian people who enter into a covenant that not only does man observe, but God Himself observes, we need to be careful to respect those covenants that we make. It's important to our testimony. It's important to the reputation of Christ. There's also great importance in being gospel-centered, and Paul is calling them to be gospel-minded in their thinking. So not only, well, I should keep this marriage because, well, I said I would, you know, there were some sort of vows, surely, that were exchanged at their wedding ceremony, and I should just stay in it because I just need to respect my word. It's more than that. They're called to be gospel-centered in their thinking, to think, what might the Lord do with this? I'm here, and I am bound. But what might the Lord be doing in this relationship? That's how we are to think as Christians. To respect our covenants and to think about how gospel love can be found in those covenants. Even so, there's a context that warrants separation. And we're going to get to that in a few moments as we look at verses 15 and 16. But the one issue that governs the decision here about whether that separation can occur or not is found right here in verses 12 and 13, consenting to live with. That's the crux of the issue. 
If a brother has a wife who consents to live with him, then he must not divorce her. And if a believing woman has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send the husband away. So let's define our terms here. What does consenting to live with mean? Well, it means to agree to the living arrangement, to continue on in agreement of the living arrangement, that they would continue on in the same house. The word for live there literally means dwell, to dwell with. So if the unbeliever is still committed to dwelling with you in the same place, don't send him or her away, but remain on with the person you've covenanted with. Proximity is what's certainly in mind here. Consistently in the New Testament, the word means geographically to dwell with. That's what Paul has in mind. And verse 14 builds on this. If you glance down at verse 14 where it says that the unbelieving husband and the children are sanctified through the believer. That can only happen if they're together in the same place as they dwell together in the same house. And this is a fascinating aspect to the whole conversation. This sanctification aspect is truly fascinating. We need to recognize a few things here. One is that when it says that the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, that doesn't mean that he's going to heaven. (laughs) That doesn't mean that he's saved. That doesn't mean he can stand and sing that song that we just sang, I stand redeemed. That's not what that means. But you see the qualifier here. He's The husband is defined as unbelieving, and those who reject the gospel aren't saved. They need to be saved. With that said, we also need to recognize there's a much greater chance of that unbeliever coming to know the Lord through the continual presence and witness of the believer in the home. We can understand this, can't we? That though that person isn't saved, There is something about the chances of that person being saved going up because they're in the home together. uh, There's different statistics out there. It talks about, uh, you know, if the children are the first ones to come to know the Lord in a household, what's the percentage chance that the rest of the household gets saved? And that's, I think, a single-digit percentage. And what if the wife is the first one to come to know the Lord in a household What's the percentage chance that the others follow? And it goes up higher. But it goes up astronomically if the man is the first one to believe in the home. And there is something about the continual presence and witness of the gospel that the Lord uses in the home. It's why so many Christians have a testimony of, I grew up in a Christian home. And that's not a bad testimony. That's a wonderful testimony. That's a reflection of how it should be because they were around the continual presence of believers and they were around the continual witness of the gospel. God uses the home to reach people's hearts. But what's extremely interesting is that as the believer is in this home in a pagan marriage, again, probably strange things going on in that relationship, the unclean doesn't tarnish the clean. Again, thinking back to our bodies, our temples, chapter 6, don't join yourself with a prostitute. It's the idea that it's going to affect you in harmful ways if you're joined to that person. And yet here, in the context of a marriage that was already established, he says, actually, it goes the other way. You will have an effect on them. 
So in the same way as, you know, a smoky room, think of a bunch of people smoking in here. And you're fresh, you're clean, you got ready for church today, here you come in and you're going to leave smelling like an ashtray, no matter how long you prepared, if there are enough people smoking in here. My dad smoked a couple packs a day for my whole time living with him growing up. Our house probably smelled like an ashtray, but like a goldfish in a bowl, it's all I knew, right? And I look back now and wonder, our friends, when they came over, were they dreading having to come over to the smoky house? Because <laughs> it just seeps into the curtains and into the furniture and everywhere. And when you're around that kind of environment, you leave reflecting that environment, don't you? But here in this scenario, the Lord turns it around and says, you won't be touched by that. In fact, you will have an impact on the environment. It's amazing, absolutely amazing that the unclean doesn't tarnish the clean in this scenario because God is especially involved in those homes. When a believer is present in the home, God is especially involved. There's a spiritual provision and protection for that household. Because we know as Christians, we are recipients of God's special provision and protection, aren't we? And in a sense, all people are provided for and protected by God. They have food to eat. There are a bunch of times they should have died, but they didn't. God's common grace is revealed in the whole world that way. But as believers, we have a special spiritual provision and protection in our lives. And because there's a oneness that exists in marriage, not just between two believers, but even between a believer and an unbeliever, because there's a oneness that exists, there's an aspect in which that spiritual provision and protection reaches the heart of that unbeliever, where God is doing a special work in that home and in the children's lives because of the presence of the believer. And there's a special conviction that comes with this too. Robert Gramacki in his commentary, said this, Since God in His sovereignty has saved one partner in a marriage, the unsaved partner has now been set apart for a special work of conviction by the Holy Spirit through the testimony and the changed behavior of the Christian partner. Think about that as that pagan turned into a worshiper of Jesus. That husband or wife, that made it a habit to go to the pagan temple and engage in those activities, perhaps was abusing substances, perhaps was doing all sorts of sinful and vile things. As that person now bends the knee to King Jesus and wants to talk about the gospel in the home instead of about the temple prostitutes, think of the impact that that has in the home. And think about the special conviction of the Holy Spirit that comes on the unbelievers in the home, that a believer is there continually presenting, living out, witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing. And if you look at the start of verse 14, it says, for. That's a simple little word that we could skip over, but it denotes purpose. Why shouldn't the believer leave the unbeliever? For this purpose, your home is sanctified if you stay. There's a special way that God touches that home if you stay. For the individual believer, as God's means, there can be a special reaching of the hearts in that home. 
One of my best friends I met in Bible college, he grew up in the Midwest in a home that had nothing to do with the Lord. Uh, his mom and dad I think, divorced sometime in his middle school or high school years, and there just wasn't a Christian witness on a day-to-day basis in their home. But he had a believing grandmother. He had a grandma who prayed for him every day. Grandma was praying. And as he went through school, he got in trouble all the time. He is like the perfect example of the type of son you don't want. <laughs> he, he would just get in trouble, he'd be in detention, he'd get suspended, he wouldn't show up to class. I mean, just continual bad behavior. But grandma was praying. And as he got out of high school, even in high school, but going on to out of his high school years, he started to get into drugs, heroin and meth, messed up all his teeth. All of his teeth were just rotten because of drug use. In and out of jail, and he, he has the mugshots to prove it. He has a friend who's in the jail system who got him his mugshots. But in and out of jail all the time, he would be brought home late at night, dropped off by the police. But grandma was praying. One time, it got so bad in his life, he was doing so, so many things that were just beyond the scope of what some of us can imagine. He was placed in prison on the suicide watch floor. He was stripped of his clothes, and there he was with nothing left. And grandma was still praying. And she had told him about the gospel over and over and over again, and it was there that he first believed. It was there that his heart was given over to the Lord. And he lives an amazing Christian life now, a life set apart for God. And he and his wife, Christian woman he met at Bible college, actually, he met her dad first when he was at a rescue mission because he lost everything, met her, married her, now they're pregnant, expecting their first child, all because God using his people to reach his heart. Because grandma was praying. There's a special way that God reaches unbelievers when there are believers involved as a continual presence and a continual witness. And we're not to give up because this is the Lord's work. We're not to do, do good until we get weary. We are to not grow weary of doing good and see what the Lord will do. So grandmas, keep praying. Well, not all marriages will continue on in these circumstances. You read verse 14, and if you stop there, you think, okay, well, that sounds amazing that God would do this spiritual work in my home. How cool is that? Well, there are times when the marriages must end. Let's read about that starting in verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? The situation changes when the spouse without faith, the unbelieving spouse, initiates a divorce, causes separation. That's when things change. I want you to first note in verse 15 what Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the brother or sister is not under bondage. It's an amazing phrase. Not under bondage. Paul is here stating that the believer is released from the marital covenant in these circumstances. 
Look at the beginning of verse 15 where he says, if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. Perhaps not the encouragement you would expect from Paul. Paul the evangelist. If the unbeliever wants to leave, grab hold of his feet and just keep proclaiming the gospel and don't let him go. Don't let her go. Not what he says. If the unbeliever wants to leave, let the unbeliever leave. It's an encouragement, but it's also a command. This is the imperative. Let that unbeliever go. You're no longer bound. Verse 16 speaks to this, the last verse I read. How do you know whether you're going to save your husband? Or how do you know if you're going to save your wife? You're not God. You have no power of salvation. And this is very obvious for all those people you've been praying for, isn't it? (laughs) You don't have the power to save. Only God has the power to save through the gospel message. And you have no certainty if someone is going to be saved. As painful as that reality is, that is our reality. You have no certainty if God is going to save that husband or that wife. Don't hold on to a marriage for the sake of evangelism. That's the big idea. That's not what we are to do because God has called us in peace and we are to carry on in that peace. Verse 15, God has called us in peace and to peace. We're to hold on to the gospel peace that we have even in those relationships. Let the unbeliever go and be free. At that point, it says, the believer is not under bondage in cases such as that. The believer is free to remarry and to enjoy Christian marriage. If you're free from the bounds, you're free to remarry, but only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. Can I stop there and all your questions are answered now? (laughs) There are differing views on this topic, but I just presented to you how I understand the text. I would like to walk you through some other views just for the sake of your awareness and for the sake of your personal study. And uh, I'm going to give my thoughts as we go along. I'll critique that which I think is off. But I want you to understand there is a, a range of understandings of this text. So here are the four main views of divorce and remarriage in the case of abandonment as presented right here. This is really all we have, just these verses, okay? The first view is the most restrictive. It views abandonment as that literal, physical separation, as I just presented it to you. They're dwelling, they're agreeing to dwell with you until you become a Christian. Now they disagree about dwelling with you. Physically, proximity-wise, geographically, they've separated. That's what abandonment is. However, it goes on to say in this view that the Christian spouse is no longer able to marry again. That, that spouse had made a marital covenant, and now the unbeliever is left. That doesn't mean that the Christian is free to remarry. But instead, you could consider the Christian as the one in verse 11. If you look back up at the text we looked at last week, we talked about how the Christian is not to leave the marriage, but if she does leave, verse 11, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that's the view Uh, the most restrictive view, that in this case, if you're abandoned, not if you're the one abandoning, but if you're abandoned, you're prohibited to remaining unmarried or being reconciled to the first partner. 
And you might ask, well, it says you're not under bondage anymore. Well, what, what does that mean? If you're not under bondage, it sounds like you're still bound. Well, this view says that under bondage re- means trying to hold on to that believer. You're, you're not bound to keep the marriage alive, but you're free to let the marriage end. But that doesn't mean you're free to remarry. Well, I disagree with that aspect of the position. Again, verse 39 that we looked at earlier, the second to last verse of the chapter. Look at the language that's used here. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. This doesn't mean bound to keeping the marriage alive. It means bound to the husband in covenant. She is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be remarried to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And that's the language that we have, especially from the teachings of Jesus, about what marriage and divorce is. To be married means to be bound. And that word for divorce in the Gospels is the word for loosen, to be released from. And so, in this case, in verses 15 and 16, if a spouse is no longer bound, that means the spouse is free. The spouse has been abandoned, and the spouse is no longer a spouse but a single who can remarry in the Lord. So that's the most restrictive view is to say that the abandoned one is, can divorce but cannot remarry. I presented to you that, of course, the abandonment is that literal physical separation and the Christian is free to remarry in the Lord. So you already heard that one, and I don't think there's anything to critique in that view, so I'll move on to the next one. <laughs> the third view is it takes a flexible look at that word abandoned a more flexible look at the word abandon. So living with or dwelling with would actually mean living with in a reasonable way or dwelling with in a reasonable way. This view sees that there are different types of abandonment. There's not just physical geographical abandonment, but there's also emotional abandonment. And that's often what a woman would say about the husband. Or from a husband's perspective, he could make the case that there was some sort of physical sexual abandonment, that there are different types of abandonment in view here, not just the geographical separation. Well, here are my, my beefs with that view. <laughs> the first is that God's enemies, unbelievers, often aren't very reasonable people, are they? <laughs> God's, God's enemies, those who have opposed the gospel, often are not very reasonable. And the line of reasoning expecting unbelievers to be reasonable can be a bit slippery. Uh, Take, for instance, 1 Peter 3, 7. This is a command issued to Christian husbands. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding, a reasonable way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is a command and a challenge to Christian husbands. We know as spouses, husband or wife, how difficult it is to live with your spouse in an understanding or reasonable way consistently. And you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And, that, and it's difficult for you to do that. How much harder is it to expect that from an unbeliever? If it's difficult with the Spirit, how much harder is it when you oppose the Spirit? And in 1 Samuel 25, I think we get some interesting insight also. Turn with me all the way back to 1 Samuel. In the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 
chapter 25, and we'll start at verse 3. This is the scenario involving David and Abigail and Nabal. When we look at David's life, and we look at narratives of David's life, we always have to keep things balanced here. (laughs) Because we know that if there's anybody who has lived an imperfect life, first it's you, and then it's David, right? (laughs) David has done some great things that we see in Scripture, and he's done some terrible things that we see in Scripture. And not every time he does something do we get the qualifier, this was good or this was bad. So, we have to seek to understand the text and what the Lord might be teaching us through the preserved Word of God. But let's start in 1 Samuel 25, and let's look at verse 3 together. This is a parenthetical statement in the NASB, just stating that there was a man whose name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Well, that's an interesting introduction to this, this character of Scripture, Nabal. That word means fool, by the way. His name means fool. So his parents must have been prophets. But uh, what's going on in this chapter is you, you've got David and his men who have been out. They've been traveling where Saul is still alive. King Saul hasn't died yet, so David is not yet recognized fully as king in Israel. And David's men had realized that some of Nabal's men were with them as they were out and about traveling, that some of his shearers were being taken care of in David's camp. So as David realized this, he sent some of his men to Nabal and said, basically, look, we've been taking care of your guys. They've been around. We've been feeding them and stuff, protecting them. So, uh, you know, return the favor with my guys. See if you can, you know, give them something to eat or provide for them a little bit. Well, Nabal, being the fool that he is, was, rather, he responds with, no. Who are you, basically, is what he says. Who are you? And I'm not going to do that. So David, being the man that he was, said, well, let me get a few hundred guys with our swords and we'll roll into town and say, yes, you will. (laughs) So that was David's plan. Well, some of Nabal's servants had heard about this and told Abigail, Nabal's wife. Abigail being brighter and more reasonable than her husband, ran out to meet David before he could show up. So let's pick up the narrative in verse 32. As Abigail was before David making her case, she says, put this all on me, David. Don't blame my husband. It's my fault. And please let us take care of you. David said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, "'Go up to your house in peace.'" See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died." 
Now, again, in these narratives, we have to be careful of what we extract out as good and appropriate behavior or bad behavior. <laughs> However, I think there's, there are two things we can pick up here. One is that Abigail didn't escape Nabal. She wasn't looking to leave her foolish, drunk, harsh, evil husband. Those are all adjectives that were used to describe Nabal. Abigail went out to keep everybody from being slaughtered, and she went back to her husband. She left it in the Lord's hands. And secondly, David counseled her to go back to her home in peace. Go back in peace. And so, even though he was a very unreasonable man, a man who did not have much understanding, certainly not a man who was filled with the Spirit, even though he was harsh and evil, a drunkard, she went back to that home and stayed in that home in peace until the Lord took care of things. And that was David's counsel to her. So as we consider these things from Scripture, I have a hard time viewing abandonment as being something flexible, that emotional abandonment, which is very subjective, by the way. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't happen at all. I know it happens. I think we've all probably been victims of it to one degree or another. But it can be very subjective as to what qualifies for enough emotional abandonment for a divorce. Drawing the line somewhere would be very difficult. And so I can't take that view. And finally, the last view of divorce and remarriage, or I guess remarriage, no, it's divorce and remarriage, is the most free view of when it allows. And this view is actually taken by Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem is a systematic theologian, very respected systematic theologian, whom we just quoted in our Sunday school class this morning. Very much of what he writes I appreciate, and he's our brother, but I think he's made a, an error here. And uh, I don't say that lightly knowing how much I've learned from him and how much more he knows about Scripture and the Lord than I do. But in verse 15 of our text today, look at that phrase, in such cases. It says that the brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. So this view actually leaves the idea of abandonment altogether and says there are other scenarios that are equal to or like abandonment that can qualify for a rightful divorce. And this is an interesting view to take because it really extends to any type of sinning from the unbeliever. There's no way to stop this ball from rolling downhill. There just isn't. Uh, for instance, in... Wayne Grudem's article that he released a couple years ago announcing this as his view, because he held another view before and changed to this view, he gave some textual evidence for why he believes that, the Greek phrasing in such cases and where that phrasing is used outside of Scripture to make the, a similar point, and he can make a, a decent textual argument for that view. However, when he went on to give some examples of other cases that would match abandonment, that's where I just totally couldn't keep going anymore. Uh, as I was reading through that and thinking through how that would play out in counseling scenarios in my ministry, I just couldn't be comfortable with that. He basically says that a sinful relationship that an unbeliever has with you, sinful meaning there are sinful acts that continue on because he's an unbeliever, if they have some sort of detrimental effect, then that's a case similar to abandonment. He gave some descriptions like a husband who has a 
crippling gambling addiction that causes severe indebtedness, or mental anguish that is caused, or habitual lying. You kind of see where this is going, where you can't really draw a line anywhere because unbelievers live like unbelievers. God's rebels rebel against God, and they live that way. Who gets to decide the cases that qualify, if that's what Paul is saying? And I think this is the result of that view I was just talking about, where abandonment can be characterized as different types of abandonment. It starts the ball rolling down the hill, and this is how steep the hill gets. The marriage covenant must be handled more reverently than this. You have to be very serious and very reverent about the marital covenant that God sees and recognizes as being binding. Now, having said all of that, I, I want to say this too. Every situation is so different. Every situation, when, when there's a couple that's looking at separating and breaking the marriage covenant that they've made together, there are so many details and so many stories and so many sides of the story that you have to hear and balance and think through and, and counsel. So please, here at this church, if your relationship is heading that direction, if your marriage is heading that direction, please give the elders of this church an opportunity to counsel you. I don't want you to hear this and say, well, this means this or this means that for me. I want you to hear me saying that we recognize that every situation is so complex. I remember being in Bible college, uh, I was probably 21, 22 at the time. I took uh, three different counseling courses, and one of them was marriage and family counseling. It was a night class, so I didn't have a very good professor. That's how night classes work. But there I was, and I was also with a lot of older, non-traditional students. Um, but I was sitting in there as someone who had been married for just a couple of years, and we were to write out our position on divorce and remarriage. <laughs> and I remember just thinking, how stupid is this? I, I've been married for a couple of years. I've been a Christian for six, five or six years, and I'm supposed to write out the view on divorce and remarriage. <sighs> I haven't gained so much confidence since then that I can stand up here to say, stand up here today and say, um, this is exactly how it is for every single person, black and white for every single person. Human beings are complex creatures. And our relationships, when you get two of them together, it's twice as complex. So we have to be able to hear things out and to think through things, first from a biblical worldview, and then seek God's Spirit to apply that wisdom in different scenarios just like we do in every other area of life. That's the way it is in this area as well. So you might be thinking, maybe there's one last question that might be lingering in your mind. At least it's one I thought you would be thinking of. Can the abandoned Christian remarry if the spouse was a Christian also? Because remember, we've been talking about if the spouse was an unbeliever. If the unbelieving one leaves, then the, the, the believer is no longer under bondage, but the believer is free. Well, again, definitive statements here can be very difficult. All of this has to be considered in counsel. But think about this. How do you know if anyone else is truly a believer? Truly. We don't have God's certainty in that, and we have to first admit humbly that we don't have God's certainty in those situations. 
So you might think that someone is a Christian. Maybe that person lived as a Christian for a long time and then now is acting different. Was that person a Christian beforehand or not? The Lord knows. The Lord knows all these things. Is that person still a Christian who's going to come back around? Only the Lord knows. But let me submit this to you. Certainly what Paul was thinking, I can, I'm very confident in this, as he's thinking of believers, he's thinking of those who are confessing Christianity in the believing community, those who are a part of the community confessing Christ. And so as we think of, well, if a Christian spouse leaves the other Christian spouse, is that okay? Is that person free to remarry? Well, what would happen in a case such as that is there would be church discipline. Because we've read in this text that the Christians are not supposed to leave their marriages. That is not the way we are to represent the Lord. Christians are not to divorce. And if there was someone in our congregation here confessing Christ, saying, I want to leave my marriage, we would begin the process of church discipline, starting with just one person talking to that person and going through the Matthew 18 steps. And if at the end of that church discipline, if that person says, I'm still going to leave, I won't hear you out. Jesus is okay with me doing this. Don't ever accept that statement, by the way, if Scripture says otherwise. But if someone says, uh, God's okay with me doing this, it's pretty evident at that point that person is at least acting totally like an unbeliever. And it's likely that that person doesn't know God. So that's what would happen in a situation such as that. So what do you do? What's the takeaway now? Because for many of you, this is very real. I don't have to make leaps to make application for you. I don't have to stretch your imagination and say, thank if you were in this situation. I know that many of you are in this situation. I know that many of you feel trapped and you're heartbroken day by day dealing with this reality. If you're a believer... Hold on to the promise of verse 14. God will use you to reach that home in a special way. God will use you to reach the people in your life in a special way. And don't grow weary of doing good. Don't give up. If God hasn't given up, you don't give up. Seek to be faithful for King Jesus knowing that the promise is that He will use you in that home. He will use you in that family. Keep praying. Keep witnessing. Keep testifying of, of what Jesus has done in your heart. Love on those kids. Love on your spouse. Hold on to it. It's a promise. And day by day, you will see what God is doing in your heart. You'll see what God's doing in the hearts of the people that you live with. And you'll come here and you'll see what God is doing by your testimony, your living example, because we're encouraged by you. We're so encouraged by you because of your love for the Lord and how you've prioritized Jesus as Lord in your heart, despite all your circumstances, that God may be glorified and honored in you. Lord, we thank you so much for your redeeming work. We thank you that it is you who has done it. 
you have made us, not we ourselves. And Lord, we appeal to you in your holy word to instruct us, to guide us into truth by your Spirit's power. And as we gather here each week, give us that energy, the gospel energy we need to serve you faithfully in our homes. It's so easy here, but when we go home today, it gets harder. Strengthen us that you would shine brightly through us in our homes. In Jesus' name, amen.